Good morning, everyone. I hope everyone had a good Christmas. And now that December 25th is officially in the rearview mirror, it is, uh, is that time of year where we start thinking a lot about resolutions. We have averted the fiery apocalypse that was December 21st, and now we're just two days away from, from another new year. For some of us, that means we get very formal about our process of resolutions where we list stuff out and we spend time thinking about it and discussing it with others. We get very formal with with putting a certain number of bullet points down that we are really going to strive for in the next year. But for others of us, uh, even if the process is much more informal or unofficial, I still think we spend this time of year reflecting, looking back on the year that was and looking forward to the year that's coming. Some of this is just built into the rhythms of our culture. Uh, For those of us that have year-end reviews at work, we meet with the person we report to and we spend some time looking back at how we did against our outcomes this last year, and we spend some time looking forward, talking about goals we're going to set for ourselves this next year. If we're a student, this is the time between semesters where we're finding out how well or not well we did in the classes we just finished this fall, and we're looking forward to the spring semester starting or not, but we still know it's coming, you know? Uh, if we spend time with family over these last few weeks, we, we probably spent some time touching base with people we don't see very often, talking about, about the highs and lows of last year, or looking ahead to 2013, and and talking about some of the plans that we have in store for next year. And as we do this sort of reflection that is so natural for all of us, I think there's usually some picture in our heads by which we compare the, the look back and the look forward to. We look back and we compare things to some picture of success that we evaluate things by. Or we look forward and we say, okay, here, here's what a picture of success looks like in 2013, and so how do we reverse engineer that so that way we can build some of these goals, some of this picture of success into our lives? My guess is if I had us close our eyes for 15 seconds and think of some mental picture of what success looks like for this next year, it wouldn't be tough for most of us to jot down two or three descriptive words that captured what success is going to look like for us next year. All of these pictures will be different depending on our stage of life in in a million circumstances that are unique to us. But what I want to take some time together today and do is, is for us to look at a picture of success that we should all factor into how we're looking ahead at 2013. This is a picture of true success, success in God's eyes. And we find this in Psalm chapter 1. So turn with me there in your Bibles if you've got them. Otherwise, the text of the passage uh, of Psalm 1 will will pop up on the screens. I encourage you to follow along with me there. So Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I love verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, Psalm 1, right out of the shoot, the very first word uses this word, blessed is the man or the person who. And then it spends the rest of that psalm unpacking what that life of blessing looks like. Verse 3 shows us the result or the, or the picture of this life of blessing. Verses 4, 5, and 6 show where that life of blessing is headed. They show us its end. We're, we're all drawn to this kind of life. This life of blessing, that is true success. Not just superficially according to, to me, but that's true success in God's eyes. And what's so cool, it, 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 what, what, what's great, I think, is that we're already drawn to this kind of life, right? We don't have to convince each other that this picture of success is something we need to be striving for. Look with me again very specifically at verse 3, where we see this picture of success spelled out very specifically. Verse 3 says that the blessed life, this person, is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Too often, I think our eyes go right to the very last word of that verse, that word prosperity. We're drawn to that because that's what success looks like. But too often, we define that word prosperity wrongly. In America, we love to define prosperity as a mansion, an eight-car garage, and a four-hour work week. But prosperity, according to God's word, is something very different. I think already in that verse, the psalmist has shown us what true prosperity is. It's not accumulating stuff. But let's look at it line by line and see how the psalmist defines blessing, defines prosperity. What does he say? He says, blessing, this blessed life, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. There's this idea of being continuously nourished. I mean, we can all picture very, very vividly, right, this tree by a stream that is just flourishing. I think we're drawn to that kind of life. We want that kind of flourishing. In our world, we are so used to being exhausted and spread thin that when we see somebody full and overflowing and active out of the overflow of their lives, we say, I, I want that. I want that fullness. That's the sort of success, blessed life that God offers us. That sort of person is like a tree that yields its fruit in season. True blessing includes the idea of meaningful impact. I, I work a lot with guys here at the church and in our community, and I don't know one guy who doesn't say, I want my life to be meaningful. Everybody says that. Everybody wants their life to have an impact. Just the other day on MSN.com, I saw this guy who was suffering from terminal cancer. He was a teacher, just had a few months to live. He was spending his last few months going around to students he had taught, asking them, did I make a difference? And he was chronicling the difference that he had made. We all want to live a life of meaningful impact. So when we see that the blessed life bears fruit in season, we're drawn to that. When we see that the blessed life, its leaf does not wither. When we hear about this enduring influence, this fortitude that stays faithful and moves forward in the right way through good times and through trials, we're drawn to that. That is the sort of life of blessing that, that I think most of us want, that God's word offers us. But if we're drawn to these sorts of results, 
then I want to apply just some common sense to these results and draw out something that we all know, that these, re- that these results don't just happen, do they? Talk with anyone who's ever accomplished anything, and they know that results, a successful result, is always the product of a much smaller series of decisions and disciplines that they've incrementally been pursuing over the course of however long that has led to that result. Talk with a successful scholar, they'll tell you this. Talk with a successful business person, they'll tell you this. Talk with an athlete who's good at what he does or she does, they'll tell you this. Results follow resolve. Results follow these resolutions that lead in a consistent trajectory towards the desired outcome. And so if this psalm, if verse 3 is this picture of a result that we want, then I think it's right for us to ask ourselves the question, what sort of resolutions do we need to build into our lives so that way we can be on this consistent trajectory in the direction of this sort of abundant, meaningful, enduring life? That's a question I have, and I think most of us have that same question. And Psalm 1 tells us exactly how to do that. Psalm 1 gives us two resolutions that we can build into our lives that will lead in this direction. But before we talk about these two resolutions, I want to take one second and just speak a little bit more directly to clear up a misunderstanding that, that some of us can have, because we hear it all the time, about God's blessing. So, so hear me clearly on this, because I'm assuming this for the rest of our time this morning. God's blessing isn't a formula. God's blessing isn't a formula. We don't just plug in the right equation and get a predictable outcome. It's not like some incentive program at work where you just do the right stuff and you know exactly what you're going to get. God's blessing isn't predictable. And God's blessing can't be earned. But neither is God's blessing just some blind guesswork that's randomly distributed like a lottery. It's not like God is playing darts. He kind of puts his hand over his eyes and turns his head and is throwing out darts of blessing everywhere he goes. God's blessing isn't like that either. What we'll see as we look into the first couple verses of Psalm 1 is that there are certain things we can cultivate in our lives that invite this kind of blessing. So on the one hand, God's blessing can't be earned, but on the other, God's blessing invites our activity. The way, the way we bring those things together that I want to plant into our minds here right now is, is, is to picture a farmer. I've got a couple of farmers on my family. My father-in-law is a farmer. I've got some uncles who are farmers. They spend their lives working the soil, planting, fertilizing, watering, and whatever else farmers do to spend their lives working that soil, right? They spend their lives cultivating something that they can never control. They can't make a seed germinate, bear fruit into a plant that gives them, uh, that gives them food and income. They can't do that. So as farmers spend their lives cultivating something they can never control. But they still spend their lives cultivating it, right? Because they know that the better that soil is, the more fertilized, watered, watered, whatever else it is, that gives that plant the best chance to grow up, take root, and bear fruit. 
that's, that's, that's where our activity comes alongside God's blessing. We can't control God's blessing. But what we can do is we can spend our lives cultivating the soil of our hearts and of our actions that invite God's blessing. And so, so, let, so let's look at these two resolutions that cultivate the soil of our lives in this way. First resolution is that we resolve to a life of uncommon holiness. We resolve to a life of uncommon holiness. At a basic level, that word holiness, it just means set apart. When we use it at Brookside, we're talking about how followers of Jesus Christ should live distinctly because we're followers of Jesus Christ. The idea is that if you were going to follow around two people for a year, one person who was a follower of Jesus Christ and somebody else who didn't claim allegiance to Jesus Christ, over the course of that year, you would see two very different responses, two very different lifestyles. That lifestyle of the Christ follower should be noticeably, identifiably different in its lifestyle and its trajectory. It doesn't mean both lives are perfect, nothing like that. But it means that the Christ follower responds to sin differently. They're pursuing different sorts of transformation. They're looking to a different source for that transformation. There should be identifiable differences because, because of this call to holiness. And I know that when, when a lot of us hear the word holy, that triggers all sorts of defense mechanisms in our lives. Some of us hear that word holy, and immediately we, we associate that with a negative connotation of, of holy rollers. People who take this, this thing called religion, and that should stay tightly packaged, you think, and they take it just a, a few steps too far along the spectrum. So, so it has a negative connotation of holy roller or holier than thou. When, when unfortunately you, you may have been the victim of somebody who wears their external holiness on their sleeve and uses it to look down on others. That's not what I'm calling us to, nor is it what Psalm 1 is calling us to. Others of us, when we hear that word holiness, we say, does that really belong in church? Shouldn't church just be about love and, and, and grace and, and kind of vague ideas about that? You have a tough time putting holiness alongside what the New Testament and the entire Bible tells us about God's love. Or a third group of people here today, you resonate with that word holiness, but you feel defeated by it because you are all too aware of the lack of progress in your lives as you pursue it. So you just, you feel like the word holiness just takes the wind out of your sails, like, I can't do it, it's tough. I wish I could spend time this morning talking to all three of those groups of people but, but what I want to do is just is acknowledge that we need to talk about this because Scripture talks about this. We need to talk about living a different way of, because of Christ because Psalm 1 calls followers of God to live a different way of life. Let's look at verse 1 where we see this very directly. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, or, nor does he sit in the seat of mockers. The psalmist is using his language very carefully here, just like any good writer does. And what he's telling us is he's saying we need to get very intentional 
about avoiding any ways that sin has influence or control over us. Look especially at the verbs. The verbs in that verse, we're not to walk, stand, or sit. Every posture of our lives are to avoid the influence and control of sin. We're not to walk in places where we'll be influenced by ungodly counsel. We are not to stand, we're not to plant ourselves in a path where we'll get steamrolled by temptation. We are not to, to assume this settled state where we resist God in our attitudes or our actions. We're called instead to uncommon holiness. This isn't just telling us be better than the people around you. This is saying be uncommon in your pursuit of a holy life. Now let me be clear here. This, this doesn't mean we need to wrap ourselves in plastic wrap and move out to some compound in western Nebraska so we can avoid any influence of sin. Because something else the Bible says a lot is that sin isn't just out there, folks. Sin is in us. Indwelling sin still lives in all of us. So we can never just move far enough away from it because you're always where you are. And also just look at the life of Jesus. Jesus, this, this perfect man, sinless man who embodies Psalm 1, he spends time in close relationship caring for people who live very sinful lives. That's who he came to rescue. That's who we need to spend time with. So, so that's not what I'm calling us to when I, when I hold out before us uncommon holiness. But instead what I'm saying to, to all of us, myself included, we need to be aware enough of ourselves that we know where sin holds control over us. And then we get very specific, very intentional, and very practical in doing everything we can to go the other direction. That is what uncommon holiness looks like. And the reason for this, it just makes sense. Remember Psalm 1 verse 3, that picture of the blessed life? There's this tree that has this channel to a stream that is being continuously nourished. Sin is like this pile of sediment that just plops down in that channel and obstructs the tree from the life that God wants to give it. The, the, the picture that I have of that is, um, is kind of this clogged drain. A few weeks ago, I was kind of doing the weekend warrior, do-it-yourself home project type thing where I decided to work on the, the drain in our upstairs bathroom. The, the water was starting to recede pretty slowly. So I'm like, hey, I can fix that. How tough can it be to, to kind of open up a drain. So 14 trips back and forth from Home Depot later, I finally had that, 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 that trap, kind of that, that S-shaped pipe taken off of, of our bathroom sink. And what had happened is there was a bobby pin that had gotten stuck right at the bottom of that trap, kind of right where the water flows, flows down like this. And then all sorts of this unholy junk had started to accumulate around it. Hair, and I don't even want to know what else, you know, had started to accumulate around it, blocking the water from receding down the sink and flowing through the drain. That is what sin does to us. It's not like God is trying to keep our lives as small as possible by telling us to avoid sin. He's trying to say, there's this channel of blessing I want to give you, 
but you are living small lives because you aren't dealing with the blockage of sin in you, right? So we need to do the work to identify that blockage and deal with it. Identify that sin and deal with it. So let's get very practical here for a few minutes. I want to ask us all a series of questions to help us identify if sin is starting to provide blockage in our lives. So first question, in what attitudes are you settled in your resistance to God? Where you say, that's just the way God built me. I'm good in these other areas. I know I'm too angry or too impatient or too whatever. But you know what? Because I'm good everywhere else, this is all right. God doesn't like it, but hey, I'm doing the best I can. In what areas have you just given up and are you settled in your resistance to God? A second question. Are there ways you are planning disobedience for 2013? That, that might sound kind of radical, but we know people who, who plot over the sequence of time how to destroy relationships or how to kill a project. Are there ways you are plotting disobedience and you, you haven't seen all the dominoes fall yet, but you're starting to push some over because you know where you want to end up. It's not a godly place, but you just know it's a process to get there. Have you started anywhere down that process? Third question, have you been toying with sin? If you imagine this door slowly creeping open, and we usually shut the door of sin immediately when we see it creep open, are there ways we're letting that door that, that opens up possibilities for sin just get a little bit more ajar and a little bit more ajar and a little bit more open? Are there ways that you desire sin more than you desire holiness? And so you're just letting that door creep open slowly. Another question. Do you feel defeated by sin? And so rather than fighting it, you've just given in. You say, this, this I, I guess, is going to be status quo. I can't kill this thing, and so I'm going to let it rule over me. If you answered yes to any of these questions, identifying some of those areas of blockage in our lives, let me suggest, let me give you, challenge you with, with three solutions, three responses that will get us back on track to the life we want to live, this life that God calls us to of uncommon holiness. So first thing we can do as we identify blockage, as we identify sin in our lives, is confession. It's something you can do between you and God. You don't need anybody else around, though it is good to confess in community too. Hear me say that. But, but this is where we, where we lean on the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Write that down. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He is eager to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of what Jesus Christ has already done for us. So, so the first response in, in dealing with sin is confession. Second, surround yourself with community. I've been a pastor long enough to know that sin is isolating and holiness is a community project. A community will help keep you accountable. It will help surround you with the right people who, who point you in the direction that you want to be going with people who will keep you focused on, on Christ. 
help you experience in very tangible ways Christ's love and his forgiveness. And the third response when we've identified sin in our lives is simply Christ. Look back to Christ. 150 or 200 200 years ago, there was this guy by the name of Robert Murray McChain. If they're dead and they lived overseas, they're already kind of smart, you know. And, And what he said was something so profound, I want us all to appreciate it. He said, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Because we can get so discouraged when we see only the sin in our own lives that we forget the greatness and the fullness of everything Christ came to offer us. And that's where love and forgiveness and grace are very much part of how we respond to sin. God is eager to receive us back because of what Christ has done. So for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, what he's done for you. And then I found in myself what that does is that motivates me to get myself back up, dust myself back up, and get back on this, on this track to uncommon holiness. So that's the first point. We, we need to resolve to live this life of uncommon holiness. But a life of blessing isn't just about sin that we avoid. It's also about discovering that there's something, there's something even better to build our lives around than that. So look, let's look at verse 2 where we see this. Psalm 1 verse 2, the psalmist says, But his, the, the blessed person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight isn't in sin, it's in God's word. And on his law he meditates day and night. So our second resolution as we, as we pursue this life of blessing is that we resolve to delight in God's word. We resolve to delight in God's word. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, it's funny how kind of a sermon can just consume your thinking. You never really get away kind of from it in your mind. It's always playing around and you're just thinking about it and praying over it. These six words or whatever it is, I spent a disproportionate amount of time deciding how to phrase the second point because there's tension in it, right? How can you resolve, how can you determine to delight in something? You can't just white-knuckle delight. You can't just draw it up in you. Delight is always a secondary response of other things that you're doing. So, so I thought for a while to, to jump to the second verb in this verse, which tells us to meditate on God's word. And I was going to go the direction of, let's resolve to meditate on God's word in 2013. But the more I thought about it, that was insufficient because because Brookside, what I want to keep in front of all of us this morning and for the next year is that meditating on God's word isn't the end of, uh, isn't the full ceiling. The picture I want us to cultivate of, of our approach, our posture towards God's word is one of delight. I don't want to stop at meditation. I want us to meditate so that we enjoy God's word. So it does something in our hearts. So we're drawn to it. So we feel its absence if we go a few days without spending time reflecting on it. That's what we want to pursue. Not just this casual check off a box so you're good for the day approach to God's word. Let, let's, keep our, uh, let's, let's keep the goal of our approach to God's word where the Bible does. Let's, let's say, let's resolve to delight 
in God's word. But the way we do that, that's where meditation comes in. That's where meditating on God's word is, is a vital piece of the puzzle towards delighting in God's word. When we hear the word meditation, some of us, are, some of our minds gravitate towards some Eastern religions where meditation is about freeing your mind. But biblically, meditation is about focusing your mind. Very specifically on any one of three things. God, his ways, the things he does around us, and his word. God, his ways, and his word. That should be the object of our meditation. And here in Psalm 1, the object the psalmist draws us to is that we're to meditate on God's word. And what's, what's encouraging for me is that we already meditate on things all the time. Think of when you were stopped at a red light this last week on your way home from work. You probably weren't in idle, even though your car was. You were probably rehearsing something about the previous day, or you were probably looking forward to your evening at home, planning out what you were going to do. Your mind was focused on something. Or imagine one of these nights this last weekend you were falling off to sleep, when you were, when you were drifting off to sleep. Have you ever had this sort of thing where, where you're tired and you say, man, I'm so tired, but I just can't turn my mind off. That's what meditation is. And so what I want to do this morning is just, is just help us think about how we can replace some of those things that we tend to focus on, the anxiety, the fear, the to-do lists, the, the feelings of being overwhelmed. I want, to, I want to have God's word come alongside all of those things and replace them. So that way, as we're stopped at a red light, or as we're drifting off to sleep, or any other number of idle situations in our lives, our minds are drawn to God's word. So here are a few things that that I want to suggest, again, as we get very practical here, that can promote meditation. So that way, as we do these things, focusing on God's word just becomes a natural reaction because of these things we can build into our lives. So this first habit that promotes meditation is, is simply reading God's word. It's basic, but it's the starting point. You can't meditate on something you don't know. It just makes sense, right? And so that's where let's call ourselves back to reading through Scripture. If you've never read through the entire Bible, I challenge you, I encourage you to make it a goal of yours in 2013. If you're like, no way, that's way too big of a book, then start with the New Testament and just make it your goal to read through the New Testament in a year. It is very easily doable in 10 minutes a day or less. If you miss a day, there's plenty of time to catch up. There are an embarrassment of riches out there to help us do that. You can find Bible reading plans online. You can get the YouVersion app on your phone or on your iPad. Whatever it is, there are ways to, to, to make reading the Bible in chunks, very accessible, very doable for you. But so that's the first thing we need to start with, just reading and exposing ourselves to God's word. A second habit that promotes meditation is memorizing God's word. If you can memorize the 18 different passwords you need to memorize for all your different devices, we can memorize verses and paragraphs of God's word, right? And so, so as, as you read God's word, there will be verses that, that rise to the surface for you, that, that capture you, that are of particular relevance to you. Write those verses down, and then the process of memorizing, where you just brand it onto your brain, 
that in and of itself will, will just cultivate meditation. You'll have to think about it as you're memorizing it. And then I think you'll find as you turn words and verses over in your head while you're memorizing, you'll discover things about that verse that you would have never thought just glancing by it as you read or as you skim. A third habit that promotes meditation is study. This is where we say God's word has riches there that we want to dig for and mine. This is where we bring our questions to God's word and say, how does God's word respond to, and then you fill in the blank with your question. Spend some time learning God's word, digging into it below the surface level. That's what our Brookside Institute is about. This next semester, we're offering a class on New Testament survey that's going to look very closely under the guidance of prepared teachers at the scope of the New Testament and say, what riches are there for us to mine that we might otherwise miss if we're just turning pages as quickly as we can as we read? So we need to study God's word. A fourth way to promote uh, meditation is to connect. This is where we connect with others in life groups. You hear us talk a lot about life groups because they are so important to living the sort of life God wants us to live. And I've found as I sit together around a, a table or around a living room with others that not everyone believes the same thing I do about everything all of the time. Can you believe it, you know? And so, so as I've got to help people understand God's word. And as they're saying, no, Tim, we think you've got it wrong. Here's what God's word means. As we wrestle with God's word to say, what does the Bible actually say? That promotes meditation. Because you think about it in ways that you had never thought about. And it plants the seed then in your brain, in your heart, that grows. And you just find yourself saying, well, what does it mean? Wow, there's, there's riches there that I didn't know about because of the benefit of caring group life. And then the fifth thing we can do, and there's a whole lot more I could list probably, but, but here's number five, is simply apply, apply God's word. When we have to wrestle with how God's word takes shape, practically applied in our everyday lives, at work, at home, in our communities, as we volunteer, all those different places, as we say, how does God's word actually take shape for me here? That promotes that focused thinking that is what meditation is. But remember the goal of all of this. The goal of all of this isn't just to fill up our spare thoughts with reciting a verse. That's, that's great to do. But the goal of all of this is for those verses, for the Bible to take root in our lives in such a way that we delight in it that we're drawn to it, that we discover that God's way to live is the best way to, to live, that we discover that this book is God in his sovereignty telling us, his creation, how to live the right way in relationship to him and in, in, in relationship with this world that he's created. We should be drawn to that. So may we delight in God's word and may we resolve to do so. Well, at the beginning of this morning, I talked about how all the work we're doing is the work of a farmer. We are cultivating the soil of our lives with these resolutions. And we should spend ourselves cultivating this life of uncommon holiness. It's a lifetime project. We should spend ourselves cultivating this delight in God's word. Also a lifetime project. But we still need God to do what only he can do. 
and bring life to that thing that we are cultivating. And so the proper way to end this service is for us to look to God dependently in prayer, asking him for these things. And so, so what I want to do is I want to have us all stand now. There's going to be a prayer that pops up on the screens. I'm going to be the one to verbalize this prayer. So, so I will say the words, but, but I encourage you to make this prayer the echo of your heart. Only you can decide to do that and to say, I'm going to make this prayer my own. And so, so you just echo it back silently to yourself as, as I say these words. And then Robin and the team will finish up with, with our last song. But, but let's, let's pray this prayer to God in absolute dependence on him for these things. So Father, Lord, we are drawn to the picture of blessing that you give us in Psalm 1. This blessing of being continually nourished rather than fatigued and spread thin. Of contributing meaningfully to the world around us. This blessing of enduring in our influence through times that are both easy and difficult. Now, Lord, may we live the sort of lives that invite this blessing. We resolve to lives of uncommon holiness. May our thoughts, our desires, and our actions honor you and your design for us. Instill in us this conviction that a life of holiness is the best way to live. And then grant us wisdom and strength to apply this conviction. We resolve to delight in and meditate on your word. In the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, may we be consumed with longing for your word at all times. We know, Father, that only you can truly provide this blessing. As we look ahead to the next year, we pause now to acknowledge our absolute dependence on you. We pray that the Holy Spirit's transformative work would continue in us, and we fix our eyes on Jesus and the life he gives. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.